A beautiful evening high up in the Caucasus Mountains. We're at the Laura Biathlon Stadium for the longest and the oldest of the Olympic biathlon competitions. It is the men's 20K individual. Really, the drama of a biathlon race builds through the race until you get to that last shooting stage and then everything is on the line. You do come back towards the stadium and you crest a hill and you can suddenly hear fans and the sound of shots hitting the target. Now Lowell Bailey, the American coming into the range for the second time. He's the highest placed of the Americans, top 12 at the moment. I think a lot of times you can see when an athlete is focused, you can almost feel like, oh yeah, they're they're in the zone right now. They're going to hit their targets. They're 100% focused. And on the opposite side, you can see when the nerves are playing a role. Every race always comes down to the last shooting stage and the last target. So I came in, I knew I was close to the medals. Got to shoot clean, a little outside the time of Beatrix, not skiing quite at that level. Oh, and he starts with a miss. And that drops him back quite a bit. But I know that it was a close miss. I know that it wasn't wasn't too far out of the hit zone. And so I guess that makes it a little more painful that, you know, it wasn't a hit. Biathlon is the last winter Olympic sport where America has not won a medal. Pushing boundaries is what the Olympics are all about. And for the U.S., one of those boundaries, the last Winter Olympic medal frontier, is biathlon. Today, on the podium, we explore the two-sided nature of the sport, from its format-opposing precision shooting and aggressive racing, to its differing European and stateside realities. So should we hold our breath as the U.S. lines up and shoots for its first medal in its last winter sport? The answer, just like biathlon, has two parts and a lot of excitement. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympic Games. As we near February, we'll bring you the stories from snow and from ice that shape the pursuit of gold. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the 12 weeks leading up to the opening ceremony, We'll dive into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. Norway, the most decorated winter Olympic nation is where skiing and rifle shooting took hold as a single activity, which was offered as an alternative to training in its 18th century military. Ski shooting, literally ski shooting in Norwegian, becomes by, to, an athlon contest in English. And that underlines the central challenge competitors face. How do you go from lung-burning, heart-busting, cross-country ski racing to precision shooting that requires absolute stillness. Biathlon's a great mix of physical stamina with mental focus. And so 
you have the sport of cross-country ski racing on the physical side of things, and then you have rifle marksmanship on the other side of things. Gold medalist, new world champion, representing the United States of America, Lowell Bailey! My name is Lowell Bailey. I am the High Performance Director for U.S. Biathlon. I competed in four Olympic Games for the U.S. Second best, if this holds, the second best performance for Claire Egan right on the eve of the World Championships. This is exactly what the doctor ordered for Claire Egan, and she's psyched. My name is Claire Egan. I'm from the USA, and I do biathlon. Claire and Lowell, this sport is electric on television, but tell us what it's like to actually harness your 22 caliber rifle and go biathlon racing. How would you explain it? Uh, so you ski, depending on the race, you ski anywhere from two to four kilometers, and then you come into a shooting range and you shoot at uh, targets that are about the size of an Oreo cookie. And uh, you shoot at those from 50 meters away, uh, roughly 50 yards away. So it requires a lot of um, mental focus. It's a high drama sport. There's typically 20 to 30,000 spectators at an event. And so the atmosphere is similar to uh, NFL or an MLB game in the US. And so you can imagine what that what that feels like for the competitors when you're trying to aim at something about the size of an Oreo cookie. <laughs> my, my World Cup debut was in Antolz. It's a small town in northern Italy known for beautiful sunshine and amazing dolomite mountains in the backdrop and uh, really fun fans. And when I came out of this tunnel to enter into the stadium, it was so loud that I could barely hear my own voice that was just incredible. And then there was also um, an airplane fly, like a flyover, I guess you'd call it <laughs> that day. So just that's the kind of event we're talking about. Yeah. So many outside noises to deal with. What's the fan situation, Claire? Um, a full sold out stadium full of spectators, plus the entire course, which is about a mile and a half long, just lined with spectators 10 people deep. So awesome. It would fire me up. I want to know more, Claire. You're cross-country skiing, but your skis, they're not parallel. It's more like when I watch you, it's more like you're skating side to side, and that's a workout. You're in the elements. You're expending so much energy. Are you cold? When we race, we have to stay warm, but we want to be aerodynamic and really mobile as well. So we wear a Lycra race suit, but almost always we have some long underwear underneath. And this winter it's been really cold so far. So we have to stay warm, especially because we need to keep our fingers warm. So unlike cross-country skiers who have the luxury of wearing big mittens if they want to, we have to wear pretty thin gloves all the time because we need to be able to work with our rifles and pull the trigger perfectly. So we have to wear thin gloves, which means we have to keep our core temperature really high so that even our extremities are still warm when it's cold out and we're racing through the winter snow. So we are probably wearing some layers, but on the top layer is going to be a tight fitting race suit. So 
when we're out on course, we're just trying to go as fast as we possibly can. And I'm fighting for every second and gasping for air. And my heart rate is beating 185 beats per minute. And all I'm focusing on is speed. And then when I approach the range, I have to really shift from that mindset into a shooting mindset. And that means I will probably coast in those last 200 meters instead of just fighting like crazy to go faster. I'll just coast, take the speed that I have and let that inertia move me into the range. Um, but at that, from that point, I'm not, I'm trying to catch my breath and I don't want to accumulate any more oxygen debt. Um, because when I get to the shooting range, I'm going to need time to take a shot. I'm going to need time between breaths to take a shot. And if I'm breathing too rapidly, I simply won't have time. So a, a really important step is slowing down my breathing, catching my breath. And there's also some technical things I have to do, like check the wind flags. Every range has wind flags set up so we can evaluate the wind as compared to the how the wind was when we zeroed our rifles before the race. So if the wind is the same, great. I can just go ahead and shoot. If it's changed, I'll need to adjust my sights based on what I see on the wind flags in order to hit the target. Otherwise, I'll have no chance. So I'm approaching the range, slowing down my breath, checking those wind flags. And then when I am finally about to reach my shooting point, that's when I start my range procedure. What do you mean by that? What does a range procedure mean? It means taking off my rifle as fast as I can, getting into my position as fast as I can, loading my magazine, and then taking my five shots. And all of that is, it's part of the race. It's timed. So it needs to happen very quickly. Um, and I usually do it in under 30 seconds or so. The fastest people are closer to 20 seconds. Um, and it needs to be fast, but it has to be smooth and accurate. So there's no cutting corners, no rushing, but you do need to be fast on the shooting mat as well. And um, once, you're, once your fifth shot is off, hopefully you've had five hits and then the rifle goes right on the back and you can start skiing again. And then you have to switch back into that fighter mindset where you're fighting for every second, pushing as hard as you can once again. Man, you're inspiring me to get off the couch and do something with my life today. Gosh, it sounds exciting. It almost reminds me of NASCAR or something in the US. It's just, um, it's an unbelievable spectacle and something I'm really lucky that I've been able to take part in. In places like Norway, biathlon is the number one uh, winter sport in terms of participation, but also TV viewership. Uh, so it's a very, very popular sport in a place like Norway, in a place like Germany. Um, so the TV ratings uh, rival and surpass those of um, that we know of in, in North America, like the NBA finals, for example. Um, and I'll just add as a side note, one thing that's really cool is that it's not just men's biathlon, it's men's and women's biathlon. That's one more reason I'm lucky and, and happy that I'm, I chose this sport. Um, and so, yeah, whether you're in the airport or a bar or at home, you're going to turn on the TV on the weekend and you're going to see biathlon. And because it's such a popular sport for Europeans to watch, it definitely means that there are some very famous 
triathletes. Um, so it takes on a, a, a little bit uh, different feeling as the, as an athlete traveling there and competing there. I'm sure. Define well-known though. Claire, you're in Europe competing right now. Are you signing autographs everywhere you turn? Yes, of course. Um, so my sponsor Solomon produces autograph cards for me and that's a kind of traditional fun part of being a biathlon fan is collecting autograph cards from different athletes. Um, and, Every day after a biathlon World Cup race, the course is just lined with fans and they want us to sign anything, whether it's an autograph card or their jacket, or um, I think the most prized thing that they want is our start number, which we call it a, a bib. It's a like a little um, singlet with a number on that we wear during the race so that the officials can identify us. And getting an athlete's start number, signed start number is, I think, every fan's ultimate dream. So, you know, I'm absolutely by no means a superstar, but I'm I had a Wiki, Wikipedia page in German before I had one in English, if that tells you anything. Oh, wow. It does tell me a lot. So that's how you're treated in Germany. What about in the U.S.? Are you hounded for autographs back home or no? I don't think I've ever been asked for an autograph in the U.S. And I get quite a bit of fan mail as well from Europeans, but it's very rare that I get fan mail from American fans. So it's a big it's a big difference definitely between the the culture the sport culture in the US and the sport culture in Europe and competing in the US in biathlon um it's it's a pretty small community uh cross country skiing is already a fairly small community it's of course only possible to do where it snows and um it's not the most popular sport yet, although I think it's growing in popularity in the U.S., but biathlon is an even smaller subset of that. So maybe at a biathlon race in the U.S., my parents might be there spectating, but it's usually a pretty small scene. I'm sure your parents are just as excited as any Austrian superfans. But I'm curious, why hasn't the U.S. had the same success in biathlon as other countries? It's not easy to get on the podium in biathlon. There's over a hundred starters in each race and we're competing against countries where first of all, their best athletes go into the sport from a young age. Second of all, they're in it from a young age, unlike us where most of us start in our mid twenties. So we're just playing catch up from the start. They're supported at a much higher level, both by corporate sponsors who get an immense value from the huge European television television audiences, as well as their national governments, which support Olympic sports in almost every other country other than the US. And they have a culture and history of the sport that is something that we can't compete with. Not to mention the fact that they essentially, European people, can just have a normal life and live close to home all winter. They see their family and friends regularly and they can go home and recharge for holidays and between races, whereas we absolutely do not have that opportunity. Um, most of us spend the entire winter from November to March overseas. And, and all of those things make it very difficult for, for us to compete. Lowell Bailey, help us explore this 
underdog mentality of U.S. biathlon, if you will, this last winter sport without a U.S. medal, even though, I mean, you came close, very close in 2014. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. Essentially, it came down to one target, and um, biathlon is the last winter Olympic sport where America has not won a medal. Um, And so I think the context of it all, uh, so to speak, is that biathlon is one of the most internationally competitive sports out there. I think just on a statistical basis, uh, the number of different medal winners, that is to say, countries that are represented on the medal stand is higher than any other sport. Um, So I think that we're building the sport here in America and North America. Um, We are definitely seeing growth um, both at the fan base, but also at the participant base. Uh, But really, you know, Central Europe, Scandinavia, Russia, they all have a jumpstart on us. And both you and Claire live in Lake Placid, New York, correct? Yes, uh, I'm at my home in Lake Placid, New York. Uh, so I'm I'm here right now. Uh, the team is over in Obertiliac, Austria, preparing for the World Cup. Well, Lake Placid is an Olympic village, and it still very much is. Um, it host, it has hosted the Olympics twice. Most recently, many people will remember in 1980, and. Of course, that was a really um, exciting and successful Olympics for the U.S., whether it was speed skating with Eric Haydn or the Miracle on Ice with the U.S. hockey team. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there were many, many other really thrilling stories as well. Um, but it is, I, I've enjoyed living in Lake Placid and, and being part of that Olympic leg- legacy. So it's really interesting now to to live in a community that just lives and breathes Olympics. And I think I do find some inspiration in that, that sort of the local history of the town where I train now. It, you know, it is a legacy uh, for sports, for winter Olympic sports um, in America to go out and, and win medals on the world stage. And that is absolutely what we're aspiring to accomplish this year in in Beijing. Yeah, there's an expectation there, right? It's a history and a community that's used to winning a lot of Olympic medals. Do you feel like that's the future for the U.S. biathlon team? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that it's a long U.S. biathlon has been around for a long time, and there's been a lot of really talented athletes that uh, that competed before me uh, that I looked up to, and I think it's just it's a continuum, right? Claire Egan in the background cheering for her teammate Susan Dunkley, who is in silver medal position, and it looks like she's going to stay there. A boost of energy when she heard Claire Egan yelling for her. You but, know, in the last uh, five to ten years, uh, we've seen our competitiveness as a nation against the rest of the world go up. And so, you know, it wasn't just me. It was athletes like Tim Burke, like Susan Dunkley, who's still competing. Susan will be, she's now a two-time world championship medalist at two separate world championships. And uh, she's headed into her next Olympics this year. So she has a a great shot at uh, the first Olympic medal. 
I think any current success helps. <laughs> sounds funny to say this, but the current success helps garner future success. I buy it. I current success garners future success. That's absolutely right. But it doesn't happen overnight, right? Lowell, take us through your world championship in 2017, a win that mirrors U.S. biathlon itself coming from behind w- with that late start. Yeah. So the the event uh, that I that I won uh, was the individual event, and it's a longer race format, so it's uh, 20 kilometers in total. And it's divided into five separate loops and four shooting bouts. And so I happened to be one of the last starters that day. So I was bid number 100 in a hundred and I think 102 person or 102 athlete field. And it's a bit hard to explain, but essentially when you start at that point in a race, everyone else has really gone before you 89 competitors starting in 30 second intervals all racing against the clock and so you you know from the split times you know from everything that's happened ahead of you exactly where you are in the race compared to the field of competitors that's not always the case a lot of times you can if you go out at the front of the field you could finish your race and have to sit around for an hour waiting to see how the rest of the field does <laughs> so that, that's a whole different experience of nerves where um, you may have had a great race but you won't know how you did for another hour after you finished uh, so in this case i was on the other side of it i was one of the last competitors to go my race went really well uh, i came into the last shooting the last shooting bout which each bout is uh, five separate targets so five rounds and uh, really, the the drama of, of a biathlon race builds through the race until you get to that last shooting stage. And then everything is on the line. Um, and the race is often won or lost in that last shooting, in that last shooting bout. And American Lowell Bailey now headed for home, a chance for the highest ever U.S. finish in Olympic biathlon history. Oh gosh, so intense. Yeah, I mean that that is uh the story of biathlon. It can go go one way or the other in an instant. I went through the shooting stage. Uh, I was able to hit everything. The last target's always the toughest one. And uh when I came around the turn to go back out on the course, that's when I heard the announcer. The crowd was cheering really deafeningly loud. So at that point, I knew it was really four kilometers between me and and a medal. Didn't know what color, but I knew that I needed to ski as fast as I possibly could for that four kilometer loop. And so, really, with the help of a lot of dedicated staff um, and even some of my teammates who had already raced that day, who came out to cheer me on, you know, that really got me through because it was a, a razor thin margin second place was only 3.3 seconds behind so it was very very close it it seems like you guys have been very close often right how close is the u.s to being competitive in biathlon on the world stage i think the rest of the world knows that the u.s is is here to play and um, we're serious about winning medals Being the underdog, as we've seen, 
comes with a lot of challenges. As I've mentioned before, the fact that most of our team didn't even start the sport until our mid-20s, that's unimaginable for athletes from, say, Germany, who have been doing this since they were nine. Or the fact that we have to spend all winter overseas without seeing our family and friends and having that chance to recharge at home. That's unimaginable for people from France who go home on the weekend or for Christmas or whatever. And and all of those things make it very difficult for us to compete. Um, that being said, we can compete, and that's why we've been able to reach the podium in this European-dominated sport every year since since I've been on the team, so since 2015. But it has been once per season, and we don't really have control over when that's going to happen. You know, if we could hit 10 out of 10 or 20 out of 20 targets and ski our absolute best every single day, we would. And, you know, you can't have a gust of wind while you're shooting. I mean, there's so many factors in Bathlon. Which makes successful performances even sweeter. Um, we do have extra challenges, but we've made ourselves known. We've had top results at the international level, and we are respected by other nations, certainly, in this circuit. I know that we're all really proud when we have successes. I just think it makes us look at our successes differently. I mean, for us, if I finish top 10, I am really thrilled. I mean, there's over 100 people in the race, and probably 50 of them, at least, are capable of getting a top 10 on any given day. So if I can be one of those people, I'm really satisfied. Yeah, I've been out there saying this all season, that I think it's an advantage for, for U.S. athletes. The reason I think that is we typically compete in foreign places. We typically are not competing on home soil. We're not competing in places that are familiar to us. And um, so we're used to things like six hour time changes or eight hour time changes. We're used to food that's not our native food. And I would say we're even used to adapting to on the ground situations that may or may not have been things that we've prepared for. So I think from that standpoint, we have an advantage over some of the some of the teams where, you know, biathlon is their home country's sport and they're used to competing in their home country in a familiar environment. You know, for most of the world headed to Beijing for most of the, the World Cup, these athletes, everyone's going to be in a foreign situation. Everyone's going to be seeing that venue on the on the athlete side of things. Every athlete's going to be seeing that venue, that course, for the first time a week or so out from the first competition. So that's going to be a critical time period for every athlete to rapidly take in their surroundings and rapidly adapt to all the nuances that every course presents. Um, and so the athletes that are able to do that are going to have an advantage for sure. As for future successes or disappointments, we don't hear from the media for four years and then we get like, I'm doing one interview per day lately and they're all like, are you guys going to win an Olympic medal this year? You know, we have the ability to to be on a podium. We just uh, happen to have not done it at that particular event in February, which is held every fourth year. And yet, yeah, we are coming at it from a, from a disadvantage, I guess. From the very start, biathlon is about duality, ski and shoot, aggression and finesse. Underdogs, but from one of the winningest nations, 
In the end, one constant seems to remain, and it's one full of possibility. In biathlon, like your first shot is exactly the same weight as the last shot. It just seems like the last shot is more uh, important. There's someone who's leading the race and they're coming into that last stage and they have four hits, you know, hit, 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 and the whole audience sort of takes their breath. You know, they can't even breathe waiting for the last shot to go. Is it gonna be a hit? Will they win or will they miss and not win the race? It's every single race in biathlon. It's so exciting, it's dramatic. The lead changes all the time because people miss and then they have to ski a penalty loop. It takes 25 seconds and suddenly seven other people are ahead of them. So check it out. It's a dramatic and exciting sport and everyone who watches it falls in love with it and you will too. That's it for this week's episode of The Podium. Follow now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads. For more Olympic content ahead of Beijing, check out NBCOlympics.com. And starting February 3rd, tune into the networks of NBC. NBC.